Well, I am a huge North Carolina Tar Heels basketball fan. Uh, I didn't go there. I have no connection to North Carolina, but uh, I became a college basketball fan in the early 1980s when Michael Jordan was playing for them. And so it just happened uh, that I became a fan at the same time that he played and I've stuck with them ever since. And in my time as a fan, I've gotten to witness five national championships uh, for my beloved Tar Heels. And, and that's a lot. Most schools uh, would be ecstatic uh, with just one, Texas A&M. <laughs> Last year, they made it all the way uh, to the national championship game before they lost, uh, which was very sad. But expectations for this year were extremely high because four of their starters were returning from last year's team, and they were ranked number one at the start of the season. Well, this year, they never quite clicked. Uh, each week, I expected them to finally figure it out, to start to dominate teams like they did uh, in the tournament last year, but it never happened and their hopes to win a national championship died uh, when they weren't even selected to play in the NCAA tournament this year. And as a fan, I was so frustrated every week as I watched these kids uh, miss shots, taking shots they shouldn't take, uh, defending badly, not being able to stop anybody, not getting rebounds. And there was, I got to admit, a part of me that was relieved that I didn't have to watch them play any longer so that the frustration uh, could finally end. Now these were the same kids that I cheered for last year as they nearly took home the title. Uh, I was so excited about them last year and this year uh, I just couldn't bear to watch anymore. And so what a fickle fan I am, right? Uh, I cheer wildly when they're playing well, but when they play badly I get frustrated. I'm quick to turn off the TV and abandon them in a heartbeat. And that describes us, doesn't it? That's how we are sometimes. We are for our favorite team until they lose. We're, we're for our favorite author until they write a clunker that we just can't even read. Uh, we're for our favorite grocer as long as the prices are right and, and they don't move the pharmacy to the other side of the store like they just did in Walmart. Now it's a half a mile to go get a bottle of aspirin. Uh, so we're very fickle. We can be very fickle people. And the reason that is, is because these relationships that I've all just described, these are all consumer relationships, right? We are consumers. We're in. As long as our needs are being provided for, we're in. We're all the way in. But as soon as they're not, we're off looking for something better, somebody else who's going to satisfy our needs. Well, Jesus calls us to something more than that, something greater than that, something deeper than that. He calls us into personal relationship with him, and it's not about consuming what he can provide. Uh, our relationship with him grows deeper no matter the circumstances, and oftentimes in spite of the circumstances, because God often brings us hardship and difficulty uh, because he's trying to teach us something to help us grow uh, in our faith. And so uh, this is the reason why sometimes we struggle. And so we've seen in the early part of Mark that, that being a disciple will involve struggle. In this first section of Mark that we went through, uh, we saw John the Baptist come and he heralds uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus comes and immediately he faces antagonism in chapter 1 as he has to deal with demons uh, who are uh, opposing him. And then in chapter 2, it's the scribes and Pharisees now who are opposing him. So it's, it's demons and it's people. And we, we looked at that in the five controversies that we've talked about uh, in Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. 
uh, over the last two weeks. And now this next section of Mark that we're beginning today, it runs from Mark chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 6, verse 16. And uh, it's kind of bookended in those highlighted sections up on the screen by Jesus calling his disciples in Mark chapter 3 uh, and then in, the, uh, in chapter 6, uh, sending them out to preach and heal in Mark chapter 6. And in between, uh, we have uh, persecution intensifying, uh, Jesus facing hostility from his own family and in his hometown, a demonic presence and activity increases, and Jesus even shows his authority over nature. And in this section, which uh, some scholars call the, the later Galilean ministry, this is all still happening at the Sea of Galilee, remember, uh, the disciples uh, and everyone else is trying to figure out who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Well, uh, as we study this section, as you and I study this section together, we know who Jesus is, right? We have the benefit of hindsight. Uh, we have the proof of the resurrection. We have the New Testament. We know who Jesus is. And so uh, the question for us today is, is we ought to be thinking about who we are, uh, who we are. Are we consumers or are we true disciples? And so in our passage today, we'll see people following Jesus for various reasons, for healing, uh, for teaching, or for whatever else we can what he can, that he can provide. And we'll also see the scribes and Pharisees accusing Jesus of, of being uh, in league with Jesus. And even his own family comes and tries to seize him because they say he has lost his senses. And Jesus concludes this passage by reminding us of what a true disciple is, by defining a true disciple, whoever does the will of God. That is a disciple. So Jesus presents himself to the people, and the people fall into two camps. They are either for Jesus or they are against Jesus. And so those who are for Jesus are willing to be called into deeper relationship with him. They are eager to do the will of the Father. And those who are against him are not. Uh, they, want to do the thing, they want to do things their own way. Uh, they deny that Jesus is God, or they deny, uh, they, they, they like the miracles, but they, they deny the one who performs them. And so we have to decide, uh, which camp are we in? A true disciple is not fickle. A true disciple does not follow Jesus for what he provides. A true disciple follows Jesus for who he is. So we ask ourselves as we begin, are we for Jesus? Let's read verses 7 to 12. Uh, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a large multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, uh, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard about everything that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples to see that a boat would be ready for him because of the masses, so they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had diseases pushed in around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he strongly warned them not to reveal who he was. Well, you remember uh, back from last week in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the five controversies ended uh, with the scribes and the Pharisees plotting with the Herodians uh, to kill Jesus, to kill him. Well, Jesus knew it wasn't his time to die yet, and so he withdrew uh, to the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. 
but people still came from, to him from everywhere. And just so you can get a sense of how, Jesus, how famous Jesus had become, uh, this is a world without social media, uh, without radio, without internet, without television. Uh, they were coming to him from all over the place. I know that map is a little hard to see, but uh, in the north here, uh, we, he's in Galilee. They're coming to him from Samaria, from Judea, from Idumea, uh, from Tyre, which is the town up here, and Sidon, which is not on the map, but would be somewhere up here. They're coming to him from all over the place. They're coming to him from everywhere. And why? Why did they come? because they heard what he was doing. Healing, casting out demons, challenging the scribes and Pharisees. They're coming for the healing of their own diseases, for, for what they could get from Jesus. Now, I'm not faulting them for that, of course. I mean, if, if you knew of somebody who could heal your disease, you would certainly want to come. But I'm just pointing out that these people are consumers. Uh, they're coming to, for, to Jesus for what they can get from him. And so uh, true disciples, uh, as we'll learn as we go through this gospel, uh, are people who are fully committed to Jesus, not just what they can get from him, uh, but for Jesus, for who he is. Now, these crowds were so large uh, that Jesus said, put a boat out so I can uh, drift away from them uh, without being swarmed uh, by the people. And it's interesting to me that, that when demons see him, uh, they immediately fall before him and they say, you are the son of God. Uh, they know, because they are supernatural beings, as Jesus is a supernatural being, uh, they know who he is. Uh, and the disciples and none of the other people do know who he is yet. That's what they're trying to figure out. Who is Jesus? So in these few verses that we have before us, uh, kind of the end of the first section of Mark and then an introduction into the next section as these verses kind of summarize Mark's gospel uh, so far up to this point. Uh, Jesus had healed many, uh, the demons had come uh, and recognized who he was while the people didn't. Uh, Jesus silenced the demons uh, so he could reveal himself on his own timetable and not theirs. And now in this next section, Jesus starts calling these disciples and others into deeper relationship with himself. So in verses 13 to 19, we see Jesus choosing the 12 apostles. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed the 12 so they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So Jesus calls the twelve. Notice that he has the authority to choose his own and his own come to him which reminds us of John chapter 10, right? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Uh, this calling of the 12 is, is the first gracious calling that we see. Jesus calling people to leave the things of the world and to follow him. And what we see is that following Jesus is not a casual, a consumer type relationship. Uh, just look at all it entails. The disciples would be with him, uh, with him. What does that mean? Well, that means to be with him means to leave family, to leave job, to leave kids, to leave whatever it is that you're doing, to be by Jesus' side. So they would follow him. They would be with him. Uh, they would do life together and learn from the Messiah. And it also meant that they would suffer the same persecution that they did. Uh, and it also meant that he would send them out to preach. That's what he was grooming them to do. 
Now, every Sunday, I get to come to this wonderful building, and I, I get to preach to you, who are all uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and this is, this is not, a, not a hard gig for me, right? I'm preaching to the choir, essentially. Uh, I hope that, for the most part, on the major things that I, that I talk about from up here, you agree with everything I say. At least, I hope you do. Uh, but it wasn't like that for the apostles. They were getting sent to go out and preach into hostile territory, uh, places where they would not be accepted. Imagine uh, entering into a, like a, the Satanic Lodge or something and having to preach a gospel message to people like that. That's what the apostles were being asked to do here. And so how would they be able to do that? Well, Jesus said, I'm going to give you my power. I'm going to give you the authority uh, to cast out demons. And that would be Jesus's calling card, the proof uh, that he had sent them. So he's starting now, to, he's calling these disciples, now he's going to groom them. Why 12? Why 12 disciples? Well, the number 12 has profound theological significance in Israel, right? They were 12 tribes of Israel uh, whom God called. And so uh, Jesus chose 12 to reflect that uh, Old Testament uh, 12 tribes uh, with God as head over the 12 tribes. But now, uh, this, is, this is reflecting and uh, keeping continuity uh, with the 12 tribes, but now in a new uh, kind of way. Uh, renewal and restoration is what is involved here. And so, uh, this is what he's calling the, these 12. And these 12 are going to be uh, the leaders of the new church after Jesus is gone. Just wanted to point out that Jesus is not one of the 12, right? Notice that uh, as God is over the 12 uh, tribes. Jesus is over the 12 apostles. He's not one of them. He has authority over them as God has authority over the 12 tribes. And these 12 men, uh, what a hodgepodge of different men, right? Uh, just different kinds of people. Peter, Andrew, John, and James are fishermen. Uh, we know that Matthew is a despised tax collector. We know Simon the Zealot uh, belonged to a radical, uh, violent political party that was fixated on overthrowing Rome. And when we think about that, we realize that Matthew and Simon would be exact, uh, Simon the Zealot would be exact opposites, right? Matthew works for Rome. Simon the Zealot is trying to overthrow Rome. Uh, what would those meetings be like, right? With those two uh, in the same room, that would be very difficult uh, meetings uh, because these zealots, they used to sneak up in crowds with, with blades hidden in their robes and they would stab somebody in the back, uh, some target, and then they would just melt into the crowd. They would disappear. This is how fiercely they op opposed uh, Rome. And so these guys are murderers, and uh, Matthew works for Rome. So uh, just an amazing assortment of people. The other six disciples, we really don't know very much about at all, except for Judas, who was destined to betray Jesus. And it's really amazing that, that Jesus calls uh, this, this, uh, the, the, these 12 to follow him, to, to take the gospel out into the world, to the ends of the earth. These people are not schooled. They're not trained. You know, they're regular Joes is what they are. And, and Jesus calls them. And it just goes to show that God can use anyone, even us, right? Even you and I, to proclaim the message. Well, having chosen these 12 and called them into special relationship with him, now uh, the task of grooming them begins. And, and school starts back in his hometown of Capernaum. And Mark, uh, it will see several times in his gospel, uses this technique of writing called a sandwich story, uh, where he begins one story, and then he interrupts that story to tell another story, and then he comes back and finishes uh, the first story. So uh, the way I was taught it in seminary is uh, it is a sandwich story. There's the bun, there's the meat, and then there is the bun again. So uh, the story begins with Jesus' family. That's the top part of the bun, verses 20 and 21. 
And Mark interrupts the story with the story of the scribes and how they accuse Jesus. That's the meat. Uh, that's verses 22 to 30. And then uh, we come back to the bun, uh, talking about the family again, verses uh, 31 through 35. So uh, as we're reading this story, what I want us to think about is, uh, one, who is Jesus's family? And uh, who is for Jesus and who is against Jesus? Uh, so ask yourself these questions. And let's start uh, with reading about Jesus's uh, family in verses 21 and, uh, 20 and uh, 21. Uh, he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard about this, they came out to take custody of him because they were saying, he has lost his senses. So verse 21, uh, his people is what we're told. In verses 31 and 32, uh, we're told that his people uh, are his family. That is who we're talking about here in verse 21. Uh, so these people should have been insiders, right? The title of this message is insider or outsider. These people should have been insiders. They are Jesus's biological family, and yet they are outsiders. Uh, the crowd inside is listening to Jesus teach. They're outside the house. Uh, so they're outside physically, but more importantly, they're outside spiritually because they are not on mission with Jesus. They came to seize him because they thought he had lost his senses. Now, whenever I read this passage, I'm always wondering, like, how could Mary think this, right? How could Mary think that Jesus had lost his senses? Uh, she had been given special revelation from the angel Gabriel who told her who this child was going to be. And an angel independently confirmed uh, to Joseph who this child would be. And Simeon, uh, after eight days, uh, confirmed who this child would be. I can understand his brothers and sisters, right? Ah, uh, oh, Jesus, he's perfect. He never does anything wrong. Uh, he's the perfect child. He's the favorite child. Uh, I, I can imagine them having issue with Jesus. But Mary, well, how could Mary have issue uh, with him? Well, I don't have a perfect answer, but I, I think the best that, that we can, can kind of discern is that uh, first century Israel was an honor-shame culture, an honor-shame culture, meaning that it was very important that a family member not bring shame upon the family in any way. And so maybe Jesus's mother and brothers were just trying to get Jesus to cool it a little bit because his teaching was unorthodox uh, compared to what the scribes and Pharisees taught. And he'd already run into trouble with them for picking heads of grain on the Sabbath, for healing on the Sabbath. And so uh, maybe he was bringing unwanted scrutiny and perhaps shame on the family that they wanted to avoid. And it was affecting their own standing in the community. Or maybe they were concerned about Jesus. The text says uh, he, the crowds were so great that he didn't have time to eat. Uh, so maybe he, he wasn't taking care of himself. Uh, Mary and, his brother, and the brothers may have wanted to protect him. But what they thought was assistance turned out to be opposition because uh, trying to seize Jesus would hinder his mission, not help it. Now, you may have experience in, of this in your own life. Uh, do any of your family members, did any of your family members think you were crazy when you became a Christian and gave your life uh, to Jesus Christ? Uh, I'm sure a few of mine did uh, when we decided that we were going to sell our house and move to Dallas so that I could go to seminary. Uh, that was completely upending our lives, and I think people had questions about that. I have a, a friend who I went to law school with. Uh, I lived in North Jersey. He lived in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He demanded that we meet in Philadelphia so that we could talk about these things. So uh, we met in Philadelphia, and I tried to explain to him uh, what I was doing and why I was doing it, and uh, he would have nothing to do with it. He said, uh, 
sadly, uh, we're really not that different. You just believe in one more God than I do. Uh, and I thought that was tragic, and I still think that's tragic. But this is what it's like when you try and explain your call to an atheist, right? They don't understand. They don't have the spiritual discernment uh, to know. It doesn't make sense to them. But uh, I felt that God had called me. Uh, and you all have felt God call you in your own lives. And it's important for a true disciple to follow Jesus wherever he calls, whatever the hardship and so Jesus' biological family uh, had yet to learn what it's like to be on mission with Jesus. So his biological family that should have been insiders, they are outsiders. Now, let's transition to the middle story, uh, talking about the scribes. Let's see about them. Verses 22 to 27. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And so he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter into the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder the house. So Mark interrupts the story of Jesus with his biological family uh, with accusations from the scribes that Jesus is in cahoots with Beelzebul. This is how Jesus performs his miracles. Now, Beelzebul uh, can be translated Lord of the Flies or uh, Lord of the Dwelling, uh, which means that Jesus is at least in league with Satan if he's not Satan himself. Now, the scribes had come down from Jerusalem to level these accusations. That's a 70-mile hike uh, from Jerusalem to Galilee to, to accuse Jesus in Capernaum. And so Jesus could have avoided them uh, if he wanted to, but instead he called them to himself. Isn't that interesting? He leaves his mother and brothers outside, but he calls them to himself uh, and began speaking to them in the form of parables. Now, remember... Uh, these scribes, these Pharisees, are Jews, uh, just like Jesus. So ethnically and religiously, they too should have been insiders, right? Insiders. And yet, they show themselves uh, to be outsiders. And even though they're inside the house physically, they're still outside spiritually because they don't get Jesus's mission. And this here is a huge dividing point in the Gospel of Mark because uh, Jesus is presenting himself and they are fighting, arguing about who Jesus is. Uh, so are they for Jesus or are they against him? And this is uh, a point of decision for them. And so Jesus offers them three proofs in the form of parables that he is uh, who he says he is. His power does not come from Satan. It comes from a much stronger uh, force, uh, source and is much more powerful. And so the parables are of a divided kingdom and then of a divided house and then uh, about the strong man. So uh, first, the divided kingdom. I imagine him standing before these scribes and just uh, shaking his head at them because their argument is so ridiculous. How can Satan cast out Satan? Uh, in other words, if, if the demons he cast out were from Satan to begin with, uh, then why would Satan empower him to cast them out after he gave them authority to come in? That makes no sense. So a kingdom divided against itself uh, cannot stand. Uh, we know from history that most of the great world empires that have ever existed uh, have, have fallen because of internal strife and division long before they were conquered by some outside foe. So if Satan is battling Satan, 
his kingdom cannot stand. A divided house cannot stand either. Uh, remember the story of David and his son Absalom. When Absalom tried to conquer uh, David and his kingdom, uh, the house of David was nearly destroyed. And so it is with all divided houses. They cannot stand. And the parable of the strong man goes beyond the physical truths uh, that Jesus told. Obviously, you can't rob the house of someone stronger unless you first incapacitate that stronger man in some way. Uh, but the meaning of the parable is that Jesus is the strong man. He is the one who has come to bind Satan, to overthrow his earthly kingdom. Jesus is not in league with Satan. He opposes Satan, uh, and he has the power to bind Satan, and he can, he can free uh, souls that are currently enslaved by Satan, uh, and so he can rescue the captives, and he can deliver them to freedom. Now, as Jesus told these parables, I wonder how much time he gave the scribes to chew on these things, right? To think about the things that he was saying uh, and, and, and to give them an opportunity to make a decision about who he was. But also remember that Jesus often spoke in parables to shroud his meaning uh, from unbelievers. So uh, after Jesus spoke these parables, uh, Jesus puts them firmly on the horns of a decision. Is Jesus from Satan or is Jesus from God? Here is his ultimatum to them in verses 28 to 30. I truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of daughters and men and whatever blasphemies they commit. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. God can give, forgive any sin except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply uh, the continued persistence of a person in defiant hostility uh, toward God. It shows itself in a person's preference uh, for darkness, even though Jesus has revealed himself uh, to them as the light. And if they reject Jesus, well, then they've rejected uh, the Holy Spirit who God sent to draw them, and they have rejected God. And once they do that, there is no hope left. There is no further witness than Jesus, uh, his word, and his miracles. And so there's only one eternal sin. It's the rejection of Jesus, and it leads to the eternal damnation of the soul. So as we come before the Lord this morning, and as we do every Sunday morning, uh, we check our own hearts. Are we for Jesus? Have we made the decision uh, to follow Jesus, to believe that he has died for our sins, risen from the dead, and that by faith in him, we have eternal life? This is the revelation uh, that we have received. Now, we don't know if the scribes, uh, any of them believed, but it seems that they persisted in their unbelief uh, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He has an unclean spirit. The, the tense of the verb uh, indicates repeated, continuous action. Uh, it's as though they kept saying he has a demon, he has a demon, he has a demon. They would not be convinced otherwise. And from this point forward in Mark's gospel, it's interesting as we go forward, we're going to see uh, that Mark portrays the nation of Israel from here on forward as having rejected uh, Jesus as uh, the, their Messiah. And so they're not for Jesus, they're against him too. All right, now let's return to Jesus's family, verses 31 to 35. Then his mother and his brothers came, and while standing outside, they sent word to him, calling for him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside, looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, Here are my mother 
and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, this is my brother, my sister, and mother. So they're outside. They're calling to him inside. Uh, Someone told Jesus his mother and brothers were outside, and Jesus asked the question, who are my mother and my brothers? And of course, surely everybody is expecting, well, you know, they're your biological family. They're standing outside. They want to talk to you. That's an odd question. Uh, But Jesus' answer is even stranger because he's speaking on a spiritual level and not a biological level. They are not his family because they don't understand his mission and they oppose him. And at this point, they are not for Jesus. They are against him or at least against his mission. So is there anybody for Jesus? So far, everything we've seen is people against him. Well, Jesus says his family consists of whoever, whoever does the will of God. This This shows the all-inclusive nature of Jesus' invitation. Everyone is invited. invited. Anyone can be a part of God's family. Uh, Jesus' family rejected him and misunderstood him at first, though they were biological insiders. He was rejected by the nation's religious leaders, though they were ethnic and religious insiders. And yet still there is a small group of people there, uh, his apostles and some others who were gathered around, who follow Jesus' call and who are obedient. And these are the ones that Jesus is referring to when he says, here, here are my mother and my brother and my sisters. These are the insiders. These are the ones who are following Jesus, who are called to discipleship and who obey and follow him. So the point of all this is that relationship with God is not a matter of biology, or ethnicity, or heritage, or lineage. It's a matter of obedience to God's will. Anyone can be an insider. Anyone can be a member of God's family, and anyone can do God's will. Anyone can do God's will. Now, here it is. He says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Notice that he adds a sister here, which again reaffirms the all-inclusive nature of this, where before it's just mother and brother, now it's sister too. So all are included. And uh, what we're seeing is that anyone can, can be part of, of what it means to be an insider. All you have to do is do the will of God. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't tell us what the will of God is here, uh, but we know up to this point in the gospel what he's been saying. He's been walking around making claims that he is the Messiah, and he wants them to believe in him. Uh, it's all about faith. In John 6, 29, he explicitly says uh, what the will of God is. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So obedience to God is first a matter of faith. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? Next, it's a matter of following him. That's discipleship. Are you walking closer with Jesus daily? This is what makes one an insider. All right, let's finish with a couple of applications. Uh, The first thing is to be an insider. Uh, What I've been talking about uh, this whole sermon is how to be an insider in God's family. Uh, We believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's an open invitation. God invites everyone to come, and we become members of God's family by faith. The the tragedy of the scribes and Pharisees is that they thought they got in because of their works. They thought they got in because of their lineage, their heritage, that they descended from Abraham. They thought that that was good enough. They knew their scriptures, and yet they missed their Messiah. How does that happen? Well, it's because they misunderstood his mission. 
And Jesus, uh, uh, in, in a figurative way, slapped them in the face and said, uh, ethnicity is not what gets you into the kingdom of heaven. It's obedience to God. They felt smug and secure in their heritage. Uh, but that doesn't gain us salvation. Only faith in Jesus saves. So people who thought they were insiders were actually outsiders. And today, we may not rely on lineage or heritage to try and gain our salvation, uh, but we may rely on a million other things to think that we're in the kingdom of God, that we're insiders when we're actually outsiders. We may think we're in because our parents are Christians, or because we're not Jews and Muslims, by default we're Christians, or because we go to church, or because we give to charity, or because we haven't murdered anyone, or because we're pretty good people, or we're at least better than that bum next door. We're, we're, we're certainly in the kingdom of God for that. We think of so many different ways to justify ourselves, uh, but actually we can be outsiders uh, thinking that we're insiders. The only way to be an insider is to believe in Jesus Christ. So are you an insider? And if you are, then be a disciple too. Believers are insiders, but disciples are not satisfied with just being in Jesus's family. They, they want to continue to deepen their relationship with Jesus. Disciples are committed to following Jesus, making other disciples. Uh, in verse 14, as we talked about earlier, Jesus called his disciples to be with him and that he would send them out to preach. And this is the same call that Jesus makes to us, that we would be with him and that he would send us out to preach. Discipleship is not easy. Uh, you don't have to preach to a room full of people like this. You can preach to your neighbor. You can preach to your coworker. It just means sharing the good news of who Jesus is. Because being a follower of Jesus is not a consumer relationship like being a fan of a sports team or your favorite uh, grocer. Uh, being a follower of Jesus is a full-time, a fully committed, fully obedient, come what may relationship that's available to insiders. It's the continuing life of faith in him, a trust in him, and dogged pursuit of Christ-likeness. So be an insider, but don't stop there. Know the riches of a life of commitment, of service, and dedication to him. Be an insider, but be a disciple too. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this call, this call of discipleship that draws us into deeper relationship, a deeper commitment to you, Lord, a deeper commitment to be more like you, Lord, we pray that uh, as we consider these words, that we would search our own hearts uh, for any, any darkness that, that lies there. Uh, perhaps we're thinking that, that we've earned our way in, or, or we, we can keep uh, our way in the kingdom by, by the things that we do, Lord. Help us to understand that it's all by grace. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. And Lord, help us to, to uh, want to uh, make disciples and to follow you obediently, uh, because of what you've done for us, not because it saves us, but because we're thankful for our salvation. And may we go forth from here, Lord, searching our hearts for any place that is not in conformance with your will, uh, anything in us that would make us like the scribes and Pharisees or like Jesus's own family that, that hadn't fully bought in, uh, and that we would become fully committed to you, Lord, that we would be like those sitting in that room when Jesus said, here, here are my mother and my brother and sisters. Lord, we ask you to shine a light on these things. We ask in his precious name. Amen.